Laguna Baptist, Jonathan Cito, and Daniel Moore last week, touched upon this topic of unity. And this morning, as we kick off our first Corinthians series on the unity in Christ, uh, we're going to expand upon this topic. And so, um, hopefully, you guys are um, excited, you know, just to consider what God's Word has to say to us. Because this, I believe, is an area that is largely neglected, not just obviously out in the world, but even in our church family. And so, to begin our message this morning, I want to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, okay? Also known as DEI. And if some of you may have heard of it before, others may not, but it is a catchphrase in today's culture. And they are values that this world esteems and promotes. And we see it across various sectors of society. For example, the medical group that I work for writes this about us on our website. Quote, We're committed to valuing all people and seeking to end inequities in healthcare. We have an unyielding commitment to diversity and inclusion. We passionately support Black Lives Matters, and speaking up to end racial injustices and address health inequities in healthcare today. Each year we see 3.5 million patients, one of the nation's most diverse patient populations. And we pledge to better understand who they are and give them the personalized care they deserve. End quote. This is not exclusive to the healthcare field. Many of the major tech companies in this area have made it a priority to become leaders in diversity, equity, and inclusion. They have taken steps toward that goal by creating DEI committees and by developing inclusion resource groups. They've even created a new leadership position, CDO, which stands for Chief Diversity Officer, in order to foster diversity equity, and inclusion in our places of employment. We see this not only in the secular workplace, but also in schools. Many of us are aware that this month, June, is Pride Month. And there's been heated debate by parents on both sides over what should be allowed to be taught to our kids in the classroom. In the coming weeks, Our Supreme Court will be revisiting and ruling on the constitutionality of affirmative action in college admission process as a way to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion on university campuses. Regardless of where you stand on these issues, diversity, equity, and inclusion is an agenda that our culture will continue to pursue and to promote. Now, when we come to the Word of God, we read about diversity, equity, and inclusion in an entirely different context. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. Moreover, they are not the result of DEI policies, positions, and committees. Rather, they are exclusively the work of God who calls men, women, children of all ages, ethnicity, and socioeconomic backgrounds to repent and believe in Christ 
for their salvation. This is according to the revealed will of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it is accomplished through the power of the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As sinners are made saints, brought into his family, equal in standing in the household of God. But diversity, equity, and inclusion in the kingdom of God are not an end in and of themselves. They serve a far greater purpose in his church, which we read about in his word. Referring to diversity in the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. In each individual part, whether it's the foot, whether it's the hand, the eyes, or the ears, each plays a unique role and vital function. But for what common purpose? Verse 20. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Concerning equity in the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul reminds the churches in Asia Minor that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Instead, there is equity among those who belong to the household of God. For you are all what? One in Christ. What about inclusion? Well, in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, the Apostle John describes a vision of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One people, one voice, one God. What we see from the Word of God is that diversity, equity, and inclusion in His kingdom serves to put on display our unity in Christ. There is only one place on earth where this unity can exist, and that's in the church. For only through the person and work of Jesus Christ can we be made one in Him. It is this unity of the church that this world does not know, but seeks to imitate, that magnifies His grace, that testifies to His Lordship, and that brings Him glory. Now, none of us should be surprised when we see wars, division, and conflict all around, politically, socially, culturally, economically, from the United States to the United Nations, we need to look no further than our national and international leaders who can hardly agree on any issue. And our calling as a church is to continue to pray for their salvation, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But what is grievous to God is when there is disunity in His church. And when we come to the letter of 1 Corinthians from which we uh, from which our summer series is taken, 
It was written by the Apostle Paul into an occasion in which divisions in the church abounded. Instead of applying and living out their oneness in Christ, the church in Corinth was acting just like the world. Though they had been called out of the world and set apart for God to a large degree, the world still remained in them. Now, what were some of the issues this church was facing? They were dividing over their loyalty and allegiance to particular leaders in the church. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. Forgetting that these men were merely servants of Christ, who is the head of the church. They were dividing over spiritual gifts. Well, I can speak in tongues. Well, I can heal. I can interpret, boasting about their spiritual giftedness. They were dividing over the practice of Christian liberties, causing the weaker brother with whom they were called to unity to stumble by eating food sacrificed to idols. They were taking one another to secular court over conflicts and dispute rather than pursuing unity in-house, rather than exercising discipline as God's means of preserving holiness and unity in their church. They were choosing to ignore, minimize, and overlook sexual immorality. Sadly, they were even dividing over the way they celebrated the Lord's table, indulging the flesh instead of regarding and waiting for one another. And that's just some of the problems that plagued this congregation. As the Apostle Paul addresses these concerns and more in his letter, where does he begin? Well, he doesn't begin with their problems, but with the solution. But reminding them of their gospel identity and calling them to unity in Christ as the true church of God. And from our text this morning, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 10, we will consider three truths regarding the basis of the unity that we, the church, are called to pursue. Three truths regarding the basis of the unity that we, the church, are called to pursue. And as we come to his word, my hope and prayer is that we would come to appreciate more fully God's glorious and divine purpose for us as his church. And that together, as members, one of another, we would actively pursue, preserve, and protect, and display through the power of his Spirit and as a testimony to the world, a holy unity that reflects our gospel identity in Christ. So then let's consider the basis of our unity beginning with our gospel identity defined. Our gospel identity defined. Read with me starting at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. We'll stop there. Today, if you were to ask someone to introduce himself, the response you would get is something like this. Hi, 
My name is Paul, and I'm your typical Silicon Valley software engineer. Or at work, you might get an email from a coworker signed with her name, followed in parentheses by personal gender pronouns, either she, her, hers, he, him, his, or any other combination that's out there. Commonly, we find our identity in what we do or in well, how we view ourselves. It might be our job, our education, our income, our political association, or our socially constructed gender. But in addressing the Corinthian believers, the Apostle Paul identifies them according to God's work in their lives and from his divine perspective to the church of God that is in Corinth. In the Greek language, ekklesia, the word for church, simply means assembly. And it refers generally to a gathering or a congregation of people. In that general sense, the Greek translation of the Old Testament refers to Israel as ecclesia, a gathered people, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 10. And in the secular Greek world, ecclesia referred to an assembly of citizens who gathered together to conduct the affairs of the state. But the Apostle Paul does not write to any assembly, but a particular one. It is the ecclesia of God that is in Corinth. Geographically located in Corinth, the church is identified as belonging to God. It is his possession. That is what ultimately and fundamentally defines the church. It is not the church of the Corinthians or even the church of the Apostle Paul who had planted the church on his second missionary journey. Instead, he writes in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, you are God's field, God's building, and we are God's fellow workers. The church belongs to God, not to you, not to me. It's what distinguishes the true church from every other assembly, including the church of the Latter-day Saints, the church of Scientology, the Church of St. Paul, St. John, Church of the Virgin Mary, even the Church of the Psychedelic Mushroom. Some of you guys chuckle, but there's actually a church in Oakland that promotes the use of psychoactive substances in their religious services. Needless to say, none of these churches are the true Church of God. This spiritual reality that the church is God's possession is not some theological paradox. Right? You and I don't struggle to understand it like we might with the doctrine of the Trinity or with God's sovereignty over evil. It's so basic that even a child can understand. And you might even be thinking, well, duh, that's so obvious that the church belongs to God. Yet how often we fail to apply this in our lives and in our relationships with one another in the church. For if we truly grasped our gospel identity, there would be no room for boasting, for passing judgment on others, for causing a fellow brother or sister to stumble. There would be no tolerance 
for unrepentant sin, no room for division or disunity in his church. If we're honest with ourselves, each of us brings into the church our own set of expectations, preferences, desires, and opinions about things like the songs we sing, the preaching style, emphasis in ministry, fellowship and relationships, masks or no masks. While they may be good, even helpful, well-intentioned, how do we respond when we don't get what we hope for? Or when we get what we don't want? Say, for example, correction from a fellow brother or sister. Do we get defensive, frustrated, bitter, discontent? Decide to look for another church that better suits my preference and my expectations? Or do we pray, let not my will, but yours be done? At the end of the day, there is only one whose expectation, whose desires, and whose will matters. It is the one to whom this church belongs. Not to me, not to you, but to God, who chose us as his own before the foundation of the world and adopted us into his household as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point from our text, our gospel identity described. Our gospel identity described. Look with me at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Having established the church as belonging to God, the Apostle Paul goes on to give several descriptions regarding his identity. And while we don't have time to go through each in detail, let me highlight a few of us, few of them, to consider. First, the church is the result of divine activity. It's not our work, but his. If we were to simply observe the verbs in this passage, Sanctified in Christ Jesus, verse 2. Called to be saints together, verse 2. Given, verse 4. Enriched, verse 5. Confirmed, verse 6. Called into the fellowship of his son, verse 9. We would see that they are in the passive voice. And in the aorist or perfect tense in the Greek, denoting that the action was done to us and that it was completed in the past. In other words, God is the one who set us apart from sin, who called us into the fellowship with Christ, 
who made us holy in His sight and who enriched us by His grace. And we, the church, are merely the objects of His mercy and His love. As the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesian church, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is at the core of our gospel identity. And we must never forget it, lest we boast in anything but the cross. But notice from our passage that it's not just his past work of saving grace, but his present and active work in their lives that affirmed whom they belong to. Right? If you go down to verse 7, we read, so that you are not lacking, present tense, in any gift, as you wait in the present age for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been saved by His grace, they were to walk by His grace. God did not save the Corinthians and bring them into His church so that now it is up to them to carry on His work through their own wisdom, effort, abilities, and resources. No, according to His abounding grace, they had been enriched in every way, given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, granted all things pertaining to life and godliness, supplied every need of theirs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, such that they are not lacking in any gift, as they are called to live in the present in a way that magnifies His grace. And just in case the Corinthians were not convinced that the church is entirely the work of God, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 8 that he will sustain you, future tense, to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't leave it to the Corinthians to finish the job. He who is faithful promises to bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ the good work he had begun in them. For if it were up to any of us, including Pastor Mark or Kevin or any of your discipleship group leaders, this church would fail. Might as well close up shop, turn in the keys, call it a day. But the hope that we have in Christ is that this church is the result of divine activity. And from beginning to end, from our justification to our sanctification, all the way to our glorification, it is God's work in and through us that sustains us to the end and characterizes our identity as His possession. For those who belong to His church, this should humble us. And it should draw us to worship. For he alone is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
we see another description of the church's identity in our passage. It's captured in the words sanctified and saints. The church of God is not only the result of divine activity. It is to be a reflection of our holy God. When we read through the rest of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and about all the issues that were going on in the church from rampant immorality to worldliness to division to idolatry, it's almost ironic that Paul would describe them as sanctified and saints. But in the sight of God, that is who they are. And that is who we are, literally holy ones in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, when he describes the church in this way. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why? For God's temple is holy, and you, he's speaking to the entire church, are that temple. Brothers and sisters, those who still struggle with sin in our lives, this, this truth ought to astound us. Having set us apart to himself, God views us as saints, holy and righteous, not on the basis of our own merits or deeds of righteousness, but on the saving work of his Son. In Christ, we have been forgiven of all our sins, past, present, future, declared guiltless before him, invited into his holy fellowship, given free access to his throne of grace, called to live as saints. And this is where the true gospel of Jesus Christ differs from all the other religions out there. We think of someone like Mother Teresa, who was canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church almost 20 years after her death. Roman Catholicism teaches that one achieves sainthood through the practice of good works. It's only for the elite. It's only for the super-spiritual. But that is contrary to what we see in Scripture, where all believers... Those who belong to the true church are saints through faith in Christ. You and I don't become saints through our works of righteousness. Rather, the gospel that makes us righteous in Christ compels us and empowers us in our pursuit and practice of holiness. The order absolutely matters. We see this in 1 Peter 1, verse 15 through 16, where Peter writes, but as he who called you is holy. That is, we've already been called by His grace. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Called to be saints in Christ, we are now to bear His character as His church. And to avoid any misconceptions, it's not about strutting around, acting holier than thou, Holiness is about being wholly devoted to Him. I'll say that again. Holiness is about being wholly devoted to Him. Our lives are to be set apart, consecrated, dedicated, and committed to God 
entirely and exclusively. This is God's great purpose for His church. As the result of His work in us, we are to reflect His holiness in our lives. This idea is captured in the word sanctified. Hegias menois in verse 2, which is in the perfect tense in the Greek. As I mentioned earlier, it represents an action that was completed in the past. But its effects are felt in the present. In other words, you have been sanctified and called to be saints in Christ. So, now as his sanctified saints, go live as you are today. This is Paul's overarching message to the Corinthians and to us this morning. This brings us to our third and final point. Our gospel identity displayed. Our gospel identity displayed. Having defined and described our gospel identity as belonging to God as the result of His work, how are we to live out our holy calling? According to verse 2, The church of God is called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see is that God's expressed desire and intention is for the church to fulfill His holy calling together. Not independently, but together. Not individually, but together. This speaks to the unity of the church. Now when the Apostle Paul writes about all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, he's referring not just to the local church in Corinth, but to the church universal. And it is certainly true that we share a common bond in Christ with our brothers and sisters around the world with whom with those whom we have never met in places like Colombia, Ukraine, South Africa, Indonesia. Our unity in Christ transcends all human and physical barriers such that one day we will experience the fullness of this reality when together with every saint that has ever lived, we will worship our Lord around His throne for all eternity. But... Notice how the Apostle Paul takes this gospel truth regarding our unity in Christ and applies it within the context of the local church, beginning in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Following his typical greeting and thanksgiving for God's grace in the lives of the Corinthian believers, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Throughout his letter, Paul repeatedly exhorts the Corinthians to pursue unity and to repent over divisions in light of their gospel identity. For the same gospel that saves us from our sins and makes us holy in Christ binds us to one another under his lordship Through our union with Him, we are united to one another. And because we belong to Him, we belong to each other. 
This reality is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul uses a second metaphor to describe the church. Previously, he described the church as the holy temple of God. But here, the church is also the body of Christ, made up of many members, yet one in Him. God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Especially today, in our day and age, with the worldly influence that our society has had on his church, where our conscience is informed more by the culture than the word of God, where human wisdom and secular philosophy is elevated above Christ's wisdom. The doctrine of the church, and particularly its call to holy unity, is one that you and I need to grow in. Many of us in this church claim to have a high view of God and His Word, but our lives reveal that we actually have a low view of His church. On the one hand, while Scripture is clear that unity can only be pursued over the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a movement among Christians today to blur the lines, to lower the standard, to compromise doctrine and holiness, to accommodate other views, and to stand with and extend fellowship to those who do not necessarily hold to the true faith. All in the name of unity. On the other hand, our ecclesiology is shown to be deficient when we bring in from the world an independent mind and a self-exalting spirit, free to think and free to do what is right in our own eyes, without consideration for the unity of the church. It's my time, my money, my decision, and I'm free to do whatever I want with it. goes against everything that Christ suffered and died for. Brothers and sisters, whether it is in redefining biblical unity or rejecting it altogether, such pride is toxic and destructive to the true unity of his church, which is of greatest importance to God. Not just here in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, but in many of the other epistles, as well as in the book of Revelation, we find it to be a central theme in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To the Philippians, he writes, Only let your manner of Life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Moreover, when we consider Christ's 
high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, we get a glimpse into his heart for the church. We also see what is ultimately at stake. Turn with me to John 17. John chapter 17. And I'll read starting in verse 20. John 17 verse 20. There's Jesus praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the 11 disciples, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. For what purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. As Christ prayed to the Father in anticipation of the cross, who he had in mind was the church. And what he had in mind was the unity of the church. A unity that is not of this world but one that is shared between the Father and the Son in holy, eternal fellowship. A unity that is not obscure or abstract, but distinct and visible to the world. And to underscore the significance of the church's unity as a witness to the unbelieving world, three times Christ prays that the church might be one as He and the Father are one. And what Christ prayed for he accomplished through the cross by reconciling us to God and to one another so that through our unity, the gospel would be made visible and put on full display. This is not to diminish the value of community outreach and evangelistic programs, but much more than mercy ministries to the poor and disenfranchised, more than large-scale revivals and crusades, more than short-term missions trips to the unreached people groups, it is the unity of the church, according to Christ himself, that serves as the greatest testimony of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You and I, Believe this. Brothers and sisters, if we truly understand our gospel identity and calling, that the two are inseparable and the result of His grace in our lives, then holiness and unity ought to be a reality in the church. And what we will hopefully see in the weeks to come is that God has graciously provided us with every means necessary from our spiritual gifts the Lord's table, church discipline, in order for us to pursue, preserve, and protect this unity that we have in Christ. But as we conclude this morning, let me just give you one point of 
application from our text. As we consider our gospel identity and calling to grow in unity, there is one attribute in particular that will enable us to do so together. It's what Pastor Daniel Moore preached on last Sunday. Do you guys remember what that was? It's humility. He mentioned that humility starts with having an accurate assessment of ourselves according to his word. Rather than thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, true humility recognizes that we are not our own, but that we were bought with a price. This ransom was paid on a cross 2,000 years ago as a payment for all our sin, for all our pride, for our rebellion against our holy God and Creator. And despite what each of us deserved as condemned criminals to be punished in hell for all of eternity, in Christ, we were forgiven. We were washed and justified, redeemed and sanctified. Enriched and unified to Him and to one another, all by His divine grace. Christ didn't simply post our bail. He set us free completely by serving our death sentence once and for all on the cross. So that we might boast in our righteousness? No. So that we would belong to Him and that we would belong to one another. And that together as his church and as members of his household, we might no longer live for ourselves, but walk in holy unity for the glory of Christ and the benefit of others. As Paul reminded the church in Corinth, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Ultimately, What's necessary for us to walk in gospel unity is humility. And it begins and ends at the cross. We will expand upon this point more next week when we actually look at one of the occasions for division in the Corinthian church. But let me close with one final exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, he writes, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Christ Jesus being our greatest example. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross that brings us back into a right relationship with you. That you restore the fellowship that we broke through our sins, through our pride, through our rebellion. Lord, we see that what you did for us, you did out of your love and mercy and your kindness so that 
Lord, we might no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and rose again. Lord, thank you for your word that reminds us, God, that this is your plan. This is your purpose. This is your will for our church, that we would walk in your unity, unity that came at such a cost. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who unites us. You are the one who enables us to walk and live out our unity in our day-to-day lives together as one body in Christ. Or forgive us for our independent spirit. Forgive us for our self-exalting pride. Lord, would you change us, transform us to be the people that we are, saints in Christ, sanctified, <laughs> belonging to you. May you receive all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.